you have a copy of God's Word, please turn in it to 1 Peter. And we'll be again this morning in chapter 2, 1 Peter, chapter 2, as we continue on in our regular exposition, our regular series uh, through this book. We come this morning to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 23. First Peter chapter 2, please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in His steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He was reviled, He did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Let's pray once more together. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, now we come before your word. We pray that what we know not, you would teach us. What we have not, you would give us. And what we are not, you would make us by the power of your spirit to the glory of Christ. We pray together in Jesus' name, amen. This and other passages that address how Christian slaves were to behave toward their masters are understandably, in our day, controversial. But I want to endeavor at the front end of this message to remove or at least lessen the sense of controversy. In order to better appreciate Peter's words to slaves here, it's important to understand some context with respect to slavery in the ancient world. Of course, when we hear the word slavery, we immediately think of American slavery, slavery as it was carried on here in the United States some 150, 175 plus years ago, which was, of course, one of the greatest atrocities ever committed in our land. However, we should not imagine that the sort of slavery Peter is envisioning here is similar to chattel slavery practiced in America in the 18th and 19th centuries. So allow me to highlight just a few differences with respect to slavery as practiced in the New Testament world uh, in contrast to how it was practiced here in our country. Uh, First of all, racial factors played no role whatsoever. Uh, There were slaves and servants of all sorts of backgrounds and ethnicities. Uh, Many slaves in those days reasonably expected to be emancipated within their lifetime. In fact, most slaves were emancipated before the age of 30. Many slaves were paid fair wages by their masters for their work. Uh, Many slaves worked in a variety of specialized and responsible positions. Many of them received education and training and specialized skills. And freed slaves often became Roman citizens and developed a friendly client-type relationship with their previous masters. Uh, We could add to this list that many slaves were provided various economic benefits in return for their service. Uh, Some of the slavery in the ancient world was entered upon voluntarily as a contractual agreement between 
the slave and the master. And this might have occurred for any number of reasons. Uh, For example, one might work as a slave to pay off a debt. That was very common in the world of the New Testament. Another might work as a slave for certain benefits in return, such as on-the-job training, physical protection, or housing. Of course, it would be wrong to suggest uh, that there didn't exist more cruel and oppressive forms of slavery in the ancient world. Uh, Much of the slavery that did exist in the Roman Empire was involuntary and wicked. And it's possible some of the slaves to whom Peter is writing were in precisely this kind of an arrangement. Uh, Further, by way of context, it's also important that we understand just how widespread the slavery system was in the Roman Empire. Uh, It's been estimated, believe it or not, that over one-third of the population of Rome in the first century were slaves. Uh, So maybe you read in some of Paul's letters, or now here in Peter's letter to 1 Peter, instructions given to slaves and servants, and you might think, that might have applied to two or three people in the church. The reality is one out of every three people, on average, that you would meet in the ancient world was in one of these kind of slave-servant arrangements. Uh, John Stott writes this, slavery seems to have been universal in the ancient world. A high percentage of the population were slaves. It's been computed that in the Roman Empire there were 60 million slaves. They constituted the workforce and included not only domestic servants and manual laborers, but educated people as well, like doctors, teachers, and administrators. Slaves could be inherited or purchased or acquired in settlement of a bad debt, and prisoners of war commonly became slaves. Nobody queried or challenged the arrangement. The institution of slavery was a fact of Mediterranean economic life so completely accepted as part of the labor structure of the time that one cannot correctly speak of the slave problem in antiquity. Uh, So we spoke of the slave problem in the United States a couple hundred years ago. There there was no slave problem so-called in the ancient world. That was not a way people would talk about slavery in those days. Now, despite the fact that slavery was so widespread and so common and so accepted, let us be clear, it was still morally reprehensible. Uh, Even under the best conditions, we're still talking about the ownership of another person, which leads to an important question, and maybe you've thought of it already. By giving instructions to slaves here in this passage, in 1 Peter 2, should we understand Peter to have condoned the slave system of the ancient world? I believe the answer is plainly no. We should appreciate Peter is not writing a revolutionary tract. He is not providing a political philosophy for the empire. He's writing to tell Christians how they're to live given where God has placed them. He does not write to give an opinion on the socioeconomic class system, but rather instructs Christians on how they're to live within that socioeconomic class system. In other words, for Peter, slavery is just a given in their world. It is part of the fallen world that he and his readers inhabited. Perhaps a relevant analogy, a relevant analog is what Peter has said, which we looked at last week regarding Christian submission to the governing authorities. Peter tells Christians that they are to submit to the governing authorities, some of whom, like Nero, were oppressing Christians. Now, does that mean, should we take that to mean that Peter endorses totalitarianism? 
or authoritarian oppression? Of course not. The New Testament instructs Christians in how to live godly lives where they are. And that's why Peter addresses slaves in this text. This is a legal, socioeconomic class system already in place. Uh, Peter is narrowly interested in how Christians ought to live within it as those who have been reconciled to God and to one another through Christ. I'll just say this before leaving this point. Of course, this isn't the Bible's final word on slavery. The Bible does, in fact, address the issue of slavery. And it's been said that the apostles addressed the problem of institutional slavery from the inside. So one commentator, Curtis Vaughn, writes this, the apostles did not condone slavery. Indeed, they announced the very principles, such as that of the complete spiritual quality of slave and master, which ultimately destroyed this terrible blot on civilization. And historically, I'll just say that's true. Uh, the end of slavery, many nations in this world, was brought about precisely in connection to Christian principles that rose out of the New Testament. Vaughn goes on to say, the apostles' approach to this social evil was like that of a woodsman who strips the bark off a tree and leaves it to die. I like that statement. That was the approach the apostles took to bringing about an end to the institution of slavery. I hope this unusually long introduction uh, is helpful in setting the context and preparing us to really understand what Peter wants to say to us in this passage. I'm aware passages like this hit our ears in a different way, so I wanted to give a lot of context just so we can better understand and appreciate what it is Peter is trying to say to us in this passage. So as we now expound the passage, uh, let's do so under three main headings. I want to consider first the duty required, uh, secondly, the approval that matters, and thirdly and finally, the example to imitate. The duty required, the approval that matters, and thirdly, the example to imitate. Consider with me first the duty required, if you would look again at verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. So the very simple requirement to slaves and servants, we see that in that opening imperative, is that they be subject or that they submit to their masters. The duty of service owed to masters would have been, in most cases, legally binding. So in theory, Peter is exhorting them to do something that was already required by law in those days. Though he has told them that all Christians are free, indeed so, that they're citizens of the kingdom to come and members of the chosen race and the holy nation, none of these things should amount to an exemption from submitting to earthly authority structures that God has placed over them, even when those structures are oppressive and unjust. So, so Peter in this passage, like we saw last week with the instructions he gave about honoring the emperor and the governing authorities, uh, he's not trying here in this passage to supply these servants of masters with loopholes and exceptions to the rule. Uh, rather, he gives this very plain naked and clear command, servants, be subject, submit to your masters. And just as Peter provided no qualification with respect to the character or integrity of the authority figures when he spoke of the governing authorities, such as the emperor and the governors, which we talked about last week, 
So too here he provides no qualification for the command with respect to the relative character or integrity of the masters. In fact, he goes out of his way to expressly state that their character or the way in which they wield their authority makes no difference with respect to the duty required of these servants. He says very clearly in verse 18, you are to be subject to those masters who are good and gentle, but what's more, you are to be subject to those who are unjust. It's the word that Peter uses. Uh, maybe not the best translation of that word. Actually, the word may more narrowly mean those who are crooked or those who are harsh, those who are severe. This word is only used a couple of other times in the New Testament. It's used uh, by Peter in one of his sermons in Acts 2 in verse 40. There he says uh, that the Lord is pleased to save us from a crooked and perverse generation, an unjust and perverse generation. That's the word he's using here, to submit to masters who are crooked, harsh, unjust. Peter is likely anticipating a possible objection from some of these Christian slaves. They might say, but Peter, my master is so unjust, he does not exercise his authority in righteousness. Rather, he's severe with me. My master Peter is heavy-handed. He doesn't pay the promised wages. He says one thing, but he doesn't fulfill it, and then he does another. His treatment of me is unfair and unjust. Surely there's an exception, Peter, in my particular case. Peter says, in essence, no. There's not an exception. He essentially says, submit even to treatment that is unjust. Now, that can seem like a really hard word to us. You imagine what it must have seemed like to those servants in those days. That could seem like a very hard word because it is a very hard word. But it is this command from Peter to submit even to unjust treatment that gives rise to one of the most helpful and encouraging words in the Bible with respect to those who suffer injustice. And it's an encouragement that applies not only to those who are called as servants under unjust masters, but for our sake this morning, employees under unjust bosses, citizens under unjust rulers, and any Christian who is subject to unjust treatment at the hands of others. So let's move now to look at this encouragement. We've seen the duty required. Be subject to the unjust treatment of your masters. Now, secondly, consider with me the approval that matters the approval that matters. Look with me again at verse 18. We'll read on through verse 20. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect or all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. Mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it you endure, but if when you do good and suffer for it you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So let's just quickly walk clause by clause through these verses. First of all, verse 8, be subject with all respect. The word is better translated all fear. Be subject to your masters with all fear. Fear of whom, we should ask. I believe Peter means they are to submit to their masters out of fear, not of their masters, but out of fear of God. 
And one of the reasons I think this is because if you just look to the previous verse in chapter 2, verse 17, one of the imperatives Peter gives there is that these Christians fear God. It's actually the same word in the ESV that's translated respect in verse 18. It's the same word translated fear in verse 17. So he just told them, fear God. Now he tells them, submit to your masters in all fear. And I believe he's referencing fear of God. Verse 19, then he says, for this is a gracious thing. This is a gracious thing. Literally, this is a grace. Uh, here, the term grace very, very nearly means credit. This is something that is a credit to you. This is something commendable, to be commended in you. It's the same word that the Lord Jesus himself uses in Luke 6, verse 32. There, the Lord says, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you, or what grace is that to you? What credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them, and if you lend to those from who you expect to receive, what credit or grace is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great." So essentially, Peter's using the word in this way. He's saying enduring injustice and unfair treatment is a gracious thing. Uh, it's, it's, it's something to be commended in a person. It is a credit to that person when they do good and suffer injustice for it and nonetheless endure and continue to do good and bear up under unjust treatment. Peter is saying to endure through unjust suffering at the hands of others accrues reward in God's eyes. It invites God's smile and God's approval. He looks on us. He sees us. And when he sees people doing good and suffering unjustly for it and enduring unjust suffering, he smiles on them. This is a gracious sight in God's eyes, we read. Reading on in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing when, mindful of God, one endures sorrow while suffering. Now, this is huge. He says, as we suffer injustice, we're to be mindful of God. That's not a literal translation. Literally, it would be something more like, this is a gracious thing when, uh, for the sake of conscience toward God, or being conscious of God, being mindful of God, thinking uh, upon God and His perspective on my life and on the injustice taking place. Peter is trying to say that these servants submitting to unjust masters are not to think primarily on the horizontal plane, but are to think in terms of the vertical plane. What does God think? They are to be possessed at all times by a prevailing God consciousness. They're to be mindful of how God sees their situation. As they're enduring injustice from their masters, they're not to think primarily of the here and now, in this moment of experiencing tension and unfair treatment from this master. They're to be thinking, how does God see me? How does God see this situation? I'm to be mindful of His perspective on my life and my duty owed to Him in this particular situation. He's telling them, be mindful of God. Don't be so caught up in that which is seen. Set your minds on that which is unseen. Be mindful of God and your relationship to Him. Have your eye at all times on His approval. Again, in verse 19, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? 
So he's saying if you steal something and are punished, you're not suffering for Jesus' sake. You shouldn't pretend uh, that you're out there suffering for Christ if you've broken the law and are then suffering for it. If you're lazy at your job and they fire you, you're not suffering for Christ. You're suffering for your sin, and it is no credit to you. You are suffering justly, getting what you deserve. But verse 20, but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. So here's a servant. He's not stealing from his master. He's not being insubordinate. He's doing good. He's honoring his master. But the master is still spiteful and severe with his servant and heavy-handed with his servant. And the servant, in response to this unjust and unfair treatment, continues to submit even as he endures unjust treatment at the hands of his master. And the text says, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Doing good and enduring maltreatment, even as you do good, and enduring even as you're treated spitefully and unjustly, Peter says this is a gracious thing, a good thing, a commendable thing in the sight of God. Now just pause for a second and appreciate just how far removed that is from the way the modern 21st century mind thinks. Uh, we're conditioned this way, right? If, if someone mistreats us, uh, we're told to Hey, don't take that from him. Don't take that from her. Claim your rights. Assert yourself. Don't allow yourself to be mistreated. Don't allow people to tread on you. You got to get them back, and you got to assert yourself, and you got to get yours. I mean, that's how we're conditioned to think, right? No one can mistreat me, and if they do, I could come right back at them. But see, the way of the Christian, and the way being commended in this passage, Jesus is calling us to a higher way, a better way. We are those who do good, and even when we endure unfair, unjust treatment from others while doing good, we endure, we persevere, and we, we learn here that this invites God's smile. This invites God's approval, that God looks on the scene, and He says, that's my son, that's my daughter. See how he or she continues in doing good, bearing up under unjust treatment. This is a thing that invites God's smile. And like we said last week, that's to be the end and goal of our entire lives. If I can know that my conduct and bearing up in a situation where I'm being mistreated, if I know that invites the approval of God, well, then I can continue with cheerfulness and with gladness and with joy because my life is about serving the Lord Jesus. And indeed, He will do all that is right in the grand scheme of things. Many slaves in those days were expected to be loyal to their master's gods. And here the Christian slave says, I can't do that. I don't worship false gods. I can't do what you've asked me to do. He's doing good. He's refusing to give in to idol worship. What's the encouragement for that slave as he's mistreated then, perhaps beaten for his refusal to worship idols? Peter is saying, God smiles upon you, brother. Greater is your reward in heaven when you suffer for doing good. A particular master perhaps has become aware by one of his peers that one of his servants is now associated with that new religious sect called Christianity. And he tells his servant, I don't want any of my servants, anyone staying in my house, to be part of that cult. And the servant says, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I cannot give up my faith. I'm going to seek to honor you, Master, but I have to worship. I have to gather. I have to 
be with the people of God, and he suffers for it. Peter says that servant has the approval of Christ. Perhaps your mind has gone to a very obvious example in the Old Testament. When Joseph, a servant in Potiphar's house, refused to sleep with Potiphar's wife and was then slandered and put in prison. If ever a man suffered for doing good, Joseph suffered for doing good. He spent years in prison for it. Joseph's good conduct, brothers and sisters, was a gracious thing in the sight of God. It invited the smile and approval of God. So what's the point in all of this? Peter wants to speak to these servants, and he wants to lift their gaze heavenward. He wants to lift their gaze to God and to Christ. He wants them to see their situation as God sees their situation. And he wants to help them even as they endure unjust treatment by telling them their suffering is not in vain. God sees, God knows, and God is pleased with you, and God will reward you. All right, now consider with me thirdly. We've seen the duty required, submission, subjection to masters, the approval that matters being the approval of God. Now thirdly, the example to imitate, the example to imitate. Follow along with me in verses 21 through 23. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Now, I think everything that is said in these verses here applies to all Christians who suffer all forms of unfair and unjust treatment. I think Peter is now making the move from considering just slaves and servants in their particular context uh, to now considering all Christians. And the reason I say that is because the example he promotes to these servants is the example of Christ, who was not a servant or a slave. And I think what Peter's trying to say is that Jesus' suffering was of a kind. It was like the suffering of servants who are treated unfairly and unjustly. But I think we can then include all other types of unfair treatment and unjust suffering that come to our minds. And Peter's example, or excuse me, Jesus' example is meant to be an encouragement and a comfort to Christians who find themselves suffering unfair and oppressive treatment at the hands of others. So we read verse 21, for to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example. Leaving you an example. So the focus here in these verses is on the example of Jesus. Now, next week in verses 24 and 25, we'll consider the work of Jesus, the work of atonement on behalf of sinners like you and me. But here in these verses, the focus is on Jesus' example, specifically His example in suffering injustice at the hands of others. And make no mistake, this is not just an example to be admired. This is an example to be imitated. Like we are expected, brothers and sisters, Christians here, to follow Jesus' example in this. You know this, right? We're meant, as believers, to act like Jesus. We're meant to follow His example. That's not legalism. That's called being a Christian, a, a little Christ, as we were called in the beginning. We are to follow Jesus' example. Now, now, the word example that's used, this may be meaningful to some of the children here this morning. The word that Peter uses, the word example, uh, is actually a word that was used to refer to 
uh, like a pattern of letters of the alphabet uh, over which uh, maybe an adult would kind of write, but like the letter A, and the children were supposed to trace over mom or dad's handwriting to help them to know how to do it. Maybe you've done handwriting. I don't know if people do handwriting anymore. Everything's on the computer. But if you, if you do handwriting, you know you have tracings that you do. That's how you learn. You have someone with perfect penmanship or perfect cursive or whatever it is. They draw the letter, and then the way we're taught is to trace over that letter uh, our own writing. That's the word that's used here. I think the idea is that Jesus has set an example, Jesus has set a pattern, he's, he's put forward the perfect standard, and then our lives come over His life and we sort of trace around what our Lord has done and seek to follow and imitate His example. And the second half of verse 21 says, we're to follow His example so that you might follow in His steps. You see that there? We have how-to steps from Jesus. Aren't you thankful that, that for a people who suffer all kinds of injustice and all kinds of unfair treatment, we haven't been left without steps? Jesus says, I'm giving you a pattern. I'm giving you footprints, tracks in the valley of suffering that you can follow. You can place your foot by faith in the feet of Jesus. He's given us steps in which we can follow. So, my brother and my sister, are you suffering any kind of injustice right now, any kind of unfair treatment? Are you being wronged? Are you being unfairly maligned, unjustly used by others, oppressed and afflicted in some way for doing good? Let me take you to the footsteps of Christ, and He will show you where and how to walk even as you endure unjust treatment. So what are the steps? What's the example He has set for us? Four steps that Jesus gives us. I don't preach a lot of like how-to four-step sermons, like seven steps to a healthy marriage or four steps to deal with anxiety and depression, but here, exegetically, I have a reason to do that, okay? We have four steps to follow in, four steps of Jesus for suffering unjustly. First of all, observe, He committed no sin. It's the first step. He committed no sin. Slandered, maligned, threatened, beaten, tortured, in all of that, he committed no sin. Uh, my wife and I are in that period of life where sleep is not uh, to be found very easily. We have three kids, ages three and under, and so if you have some sleep lying around at your house that you can lend to us, we would really love to get some sleep. But no, just not getting a lot of sleep these days. We're in that, that phase of life, right? And we have this practice. We've been doing it for about a year or so now because uh, we'll have a few nights in a row where we've not gotten good sleep. And... Um, you know, not getting to sleep could put you in a cranky mood, put you in a bad attitude. And so we started, just for the benefit of one another, announcing the bad attitude in advance. So, so having got any sleep, I get up, I'm making my coffee, and I'm just, if I'm in a bad mood, a, a, a grace to my wife is to tell her that, just to inform her. Uh, bad night of sleep again last night. Um, I'm not in a great mood. By God's grace, I'm going to try to snap out of it. But if I'm not talking a lot, I don't seem very cheerful, or if I seem a little short with the kids, just so you know, not getting a lot of sleep, I'm feeling kind of cranky. That's just a way to kind of clear the air so everyone knows what's going on, okay? Uh, that happens after one or two bad nights of sleep, and, and, and I'm already beginning to make excuses for my sin, right? The Lord was stricken, smitten, and afflicted of God, and He sinned not. 
He bore the weight of the world, the weight of our sins upon His shoulder. He was cruelly maligned and slandered and reviled. And yet, He always gave attention perfectly to obeying His Father's will. He said, I delight to do Your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. What's the application for us? Christian, you find yourself suffering unfair treatment, suffering unjustly. Sin is not an option. Suffering unfair treatment from others does not give us an excuse to give in to sin. Jesus committed no sin. And that's not just an example to be admired. Peter is saying we're to follow in his example. We are to sin not when we find ourselves suffering unjust treatment. So brothers and sisters, just pastorally, let me encourage you, let me exhort you against two subtle attitudes that Satan uses to ensnare Christians all the time. Uh, Beware, first of all, of rationalizing sin on the basis of self-pity or perceived victimhood. Satan ensnares us all the time with this. I start feeling sorry for myself. I start feeling, you know, I I did kind of get a raw deal. You know, I am really a a, a victim, and and I, I really am not getting the sort of treatment that I deserve, and so don't I deserve to kind of go off the handle a little bit? Uh, people do this all the time. They're, they're being mistreated, let's say, in their work setting. And, and someone might say, well, well, so what if I knock back a few beers and get wasted? What's the big deal? Uh, that could be understood, couldn't it? Because I'm in such a hard situation. I really am a victim at the end of the day. Self-pity drives us to sin. Friends, self-pity is like a cancer. And it metastasizes. And it will erode your affections. And it will poison your life. And before you know it, you will be making all kinds of excuses and justifications for sin if you allow yourself to become riddled with self-pity. A second, caution. Beware of excusing sin in response to the unjust treatment you receive from others. Uh, so, so, honestly, one of the ways uh, we, the pastors of this church, hear this most often is in the context of marriage. The husband has sinned against the wife in some way, and the wife says, well, well, it could be understood, right, if I decide to give him the business and let him have it and, and do this or that. I mean, after all, if you were in my shoes, what would you do? Or the wife has done something terrible and the husband says, well, because she did this, certainly I'm justified in doing that. Brothers and sisters, we should follow the example of Christ. What is commendable in God's eyes, gracious in His sight, is that when we're mistreated, we don't use that as an occasion for sin. Rather, we we think and we reflect and are inspired by the example of our Savior, and we say we want to be like Him, how He endured unfair, unjust treatment, and yet He didn't sin. Yet He set His mind and His heart on the will of God. That is the pattern the Lord Jesus has given us to follow. What is it that's commendable to God? What is a glorious sight to Him? The Christian who suffers wrong and follows in the example of the Savior sinning not. Uh, Second step that we're given in this passage, second step of Jesus, uh, neither was deceit found in His mouth. So, He committed no sin. Secondly, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When He encountered oppression and unjust treatment, He didn't resort to deceit or cunning or guile. His speech was pure. His words were good and faithful and gracious words. He didn't try to manipulate his way out of suffering. He didn't play word games with people. He didn't speak evil of those who oppressed him. He didn't lie when it would have been expedient to do so. 
So brothers and sisters, I encourage you, when you suffer unjustly, watch your words. May it be said of you, you know, when she was suffering under unjust treatment from her employer, there was no guile found in her mouth. I mean, she, she, she spoke with such grace and such kindness, even as she endured maltreatment. You know, when he was subject to that kind of abuse and slander from that coworker, he never responded in turn. Rather, his words were pure and filled with grace. Third step we have in our text, we read that when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. Do you remember uh, some of the examples, some of the ways in which Jesus was reviled? Tied a blindfold around his eyes, and then one by one started slapping him in the face. What they say, prophesy to us, O Christ, who, who's the one who hits you? And they put a crown of thorns on his head. They said, Hail, King of the Jews, behold, behold your king. They were reviling him. They said to him from the cross, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. He trusted God to deliver him. Let God go ahead. If God is his Father, let God send him down from the cross. All of this he endured as the perfect, spotless Son of God. He supplied the very air in their lungs and the musculature of their vocal cords that enabled them to hurl these blasphemies at him, and yet all the while he did not revile in return. At any moment, he might have caused them to drop dead, and yet he allowed them to revile him, did not revile in return. This is the one, brothers and sisters, who then says to us in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you. When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, you have God's benediction. Blessed are you. He says, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And of course, so they persecuted the Lord. Again, in the Sermon on the Mount, verse 38 of chapter 5, Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So friends, when we are reviled, the Christian pattern is that we don't revile in return. When we are taken advantage of, we don't respond in kind. Now this, of course, doesn't mean, let me just qualify this here, doesn't mean if you're enduring something criminal or something illegal that you can't pursue recourse, you can't report a crime or something like that. These texts do not imply that. And I don't mean to imply that in my comments here, but there is a general principle here. Jesus has in mind the typical sort of garden variety forms of injustice and unfair treatment that Christians might experience, and he says, we don't get even. We don't revile in return. This is the Christian way. When we experience and endure unjust treatment, when we experience reviling from others, we don't respond in kind, rather we return grace, kindness, mercy. In Romans 12, verse 19, 
Paul says this, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. You know, it's not an inappropriate thought when enduring unjust treatment to think, God will judge them, so I don't have to. We don't have to get even, brothers and sisters. And when we try to, we are robbing God of His just judgment. It is a Christian thought to think, I can appeal to judgment day. I don't need to get even in the here and now. I don't need to settle the score. God will make all things right in the end. Which leads to the fourth and final step Peter gives us in this passage. We read, verse 23, When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. See, Jesus maintained a cosmic perspective on his suffering. He, more than anyone, was mindful of God as he suffered. And he knew, even as I suffer injustice, I know I can entrust myself to a God who judges justly. It's not wrong to think when experiencing maltreatment from others that God will judge them, that God's justice will be vindicated. And friends, this removes the impulse, doesn't it? The need that we feel to be vindicated, to set things right in the here and now. Brother and sister, God sees and God knows what you're going through, and this is His promise. He will judge justly. And I can know that if I need to be vindicated, one day I will be. I don't need to be vindicated in the here and now. Nothing escapes his gaze. He sees everything. There is nothing done in secret that will not be declared on the rooftop. So I'll entrust myself to him even as I suffer injustice. Now, real talk for a second. Uh, Some of us here really do struggle with a sort of hyperactive sense of fairness, don't we? Like, Like we are experts in identifying all the ways that we're wrong. I didn't think I had a hyperactive sense of justice until I got married. And I was just the victim all the time, and I was always right in all the arguments, and and, and surely the Lord is looking down on me as some kind of victim or something like that. We're good at this, aren't we? We are always the victim in our stories. We're always the, the, the righteous one being oppressed. We're never the oppressor ourselves. And if we have a, a hyperactive sense of justice, we might regularly often feel the need, the compulsive need, to vindicate ourselves. Like, like it just has to be known in the court of public opinion, in the family, in this friend group, with the in-laws, or at work, or in this or that setting. I need everyone to know and to see that I was in the right and he was in the wrong. Like, justice has to be done. I need to be vindicated. Don't people need to see that and know that? Am I just supposed to take it and let it go? Because I was right at the end of the day, and he was wrong. We think that way all the time. But this principle, brothers and sisters, this idea that we can entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly, means we don't have to vindicate ourselves. We are prepared by a theology that allows us to be wronged. We can be wronged, and we can take it up with God, and we could know like Jesus knew. We could entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly. Listen, brother, sister, 
There is no wrong done to you that God has not seen. He knows what you're going through. He knows what you've experienced. And in a way you couldn't possibly understand from your present perspective, he's going to make all things right. And if there's judgment that needs to be meted out, God will do the judging. God will make all things right. He will do all things well. What a comfort it would have been to these servants and these slaves, especially those who were dealing not with the good and gentle masters, but the unjust and oppressive masters to know God sees all of this. I don't need to get even. I don't need to slip something into my master's drink. I don't need to, I don't need to settle the score. I don't need to be vindicated in the wider world. God will give me justice. God sees what I'm going through. And he has told me that if I endure doing good under unjust treatment, I can have his approval, and that is enough for me. And I'll leave judgment to God. He will be the one who judges justly. Well, now in closing, brothers and sisters, let's consider briefly just a few lines of application. Granted, that last point was largely application, giving us this pattern, this example that we are to follow. But just a few more lines, and then we'll be done. Brothers and sisters, first of all, when called to submit to unjust treatment, let us be mindful of God's perspective. When called by God, as we so often are, to submit to unjust treatment, let us be mindful of God's perspective. Brothers and sisters, God sees that if we suffer for doing good and if we entrust ourselves to Him and if we follow Christ's example in suffering, we can know that God approves of us which is all that really matters. This is a gracious thing in his sight. Second point of application. We must never be vindictive when suffering injustice at the hands of others. We must never be vindictive when suffering injustice at the hands of others. Jesus never responded to evil in kind. Those of us who carry his name those of us who follow his example, we too can never respond to evil in kind. We don't return reviling with reviling. The Christian creed is not an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. This is the Christian way. We bless when persecuted. We pray for those who spitefully use us. We love our enemies. We return injustice with grace. We return hate with love. Thirdly and finally, Brothers and sisters, armed with the perspectives of this passage, armed with the perspectives of this passage, we should ready ourselves for enduring unjust treatment for Christ's sake. I'll say that again. Armed with the perspectives of this passage, we should ready ourselves, we should prepare ourselves for enduring unjust treatment for Christ's sake. None of us gets a pass. No one here is exceptional. We should expect that unfair treatment is coming. It's fairly ordinary and standard in this life. We shouldn't be surprised by it, and we should therefore prepare ourselves for suffering with the perspectives of this passage. Like, like this should become habit for us, rehearsing the example of Jesus when he suffered unjustly. So very practically, brother, sister, you open your email tomorrow morning. And there it is, someone with an unjust criticism of you. Or they just have no grounds to make the criticism, but they said it's unfair, it's unjust, it's not kind. Remember the principles of this passage. Someone utters an unfair slur at you. 
or set some unreasonable expectation on you, or you learn that someone is slandering you at the office or at work or in the school or the co-op, you should think there is a Christian protocol for this. Shouldn't be surprised by this. There's a way my Lord has called me to act. I have a protocol. I roomed for a couple of years, maybe three years, uh, with our deacon, pastoral assistant Brad Kinnison. We, we roomed together when we were teenagers, and then we roomed later on um, after college. Uh, Brad was an emergency room nurse, and I was a full-time seminary student at the time. And um, we would, it, we, this was staying at his parents' house. And um, at the end of the day, Brad would come home, and we'd talk about our day. And uh, he'd say, what'd you do today? I said, well, I, I read this book, and uh, very helpful. And then I watched this lecture, and then I read this other book, and um, had a sandwich, and that was my day. And Brad, the ER nurse, very blithely, just like he was, you know, shooting the breeze, began to tell me about all the lives he had saved that day, and all the, all the, the crazy situations of people coming in to the emergency room with all kinds of different bizarre things. We have a lot of other medical personnel in the church, and what always amazes me about people who are involved in nursing or in medicine or those who perform surgeries and things like that is their remarkable composure. Like, like, like situations where most of us here would be baffled and like, what in the world? He had a, an arrow sticking out of his head, and what, what in the world? And you just pulled it out, and then you... He was cool. He was calm. He was composed because he knew the protocol. He wasn't surprised by this. He wasn't phased by this. He had had years of training. He had been prepared to see these sorts of things out in the wild that most of us, if we saw them, you know, might be hurling our guts out or, you know, calling 911 or something like that. But why was he so composed? Why are people involved in these sorts of procedures and these sorts of situations so prepared? Well, it's because they've equipped themselves for years. They've prepared themselves. They know the protocols. They've seen it before. Well, similarly, brothers and sisters, we should go to passages like this and use this to equip ourselves, to arm ourselves. We have protocols for when we suffer unjustly. And so we shouldn't be surprised if we get that email tomorrow morning or if we find out someone has been slandering us with unjust criticism. There is a Christian protocol. We sin not. We don't allow deceit and guile to pour forth from our mouths. When we're reviled, we don't revile in return. We don't threaten people. We entrust ourselves to a God who judges justly. May God help us as a matter of habit, as a matter of grace, to learn and implement these Christian protocols into our lives. When called to suffer for Christ's sake, brothers and sisters, let us imitate the Lord's example. And remember, I have footsteps to follow. The Lord has set tracks in place that I can follow when I, like him, suffer unjustly. In closing, let me encourage you just with one more word, one more perspective that we ought to have to help us as we suffer injustice for Christ's sake. And you can consider this a preview for next week's sermon. There's a detail in verse 21 that I just passed over, and deliberately so. Maybe you noticed it. But there we read, for this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you. So you might ask yourself, uh, under whose unjust treatment did Christ suffer? 
Who was it that was treating Christ so unfairly and so unjustly? And it would be correct to say in some ways the, the Jewish leaders. They're the ones who slapped him on the face. You could say it was the Roman centurions who gambled over his clothes and, and, and hailed blasphemies at him while he was up on the cross. But brothers and sisters, hopefully you know, hopefully you've already gone there in your mind. It was our sins that put Jesus there. We are the ones who oppress the Lord. Our chastisement was laid upon Him, our iniquities, our affliction. We were supposed to be on that cross, but because of our bitter thoughts and our evil deeds and every wicked word we've uttered, those were the things that put Him on the cross and made Him a spectacle of injustice. It's like that song we sing, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Behold the man upon the tree, my sin upon his shoulder. Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Between us and Christ, we were the oppressors. He the oppressed. Voluntarily so that he might save sinners like us who put him there on the cross. Now, if that doesn't inspire you to want to persevere through the sorts of unjust treatment we experience from our fellow sinners, I don't know what will. Jesus has set us a pattern. He has set us an example. And more than that, he died in our place, suffering the unjust punishment that our sins deserved. And so we should recognize that we experience evil in this world and unjust treatment. This should come to our minds. It is nothing compared to what Christ has had from me. My sin put him on that cross, and if he could die for me, and if he could remove my sins as far as the east is from the west, a sinner who put him there on that cross, well, I can in righteousness and in godliness imitate his example and suffer whatever unjust treatment knowing that it is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, the truth is plain. We see it here in the Scriptures. What a pure and peerless model our Savior has set forth for us. But we confess to you, though the way forward is clear, it's a hard road for us to follow. We find it difficult. We, we, we find it so challenging to bear up under unjust and unfair treatment. Give us grace for this. Cause us to fall so in love with the person of Jesus and His example, and His love and grace for us. And so transform us and change us that we too could be like Him, that we could follow Him, and that we, like Him, could be pleasing to You in the way we endure suffering, in the way we walk through the valleys of maltreatment. Please, Father, give us these perspectives. Knit them on our hearts. May we develop habits of grace May we follow what our Lord has done. And may each one here be sweetly wooed and won by the example of our Savior, who not only endured oppression, but endured it from our hands. We know that those cords that struck Him, those nails that pierced His hands, were the fruit of our wicked deeds. Oh Lord, thank You for the love of Christ. May those of us who love him and who have been won by his grace, may we follow him and give up our lives in service to others. May we follow his example of enduring suffering while sinning not. 
to the honor and glory of our Savior. Help us in this, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.